This is the Diaspora Dialogues podcast series. My name is Helen Walsh, and I'm the president of DD. DD helps emerging writers turn their craft into a career through mentoring programs, PD seminars, and public talks and conversations. We record our events in order to bring the best of Canadian writing and thinking to you through this series. In this episode, which was an on-stage conversation between writer and educator Minister Faust and the moderator Ifi Chiwetelu from CBC's Now or Never, we looked at the amazing Afrofuturist writings of Minister Faust, as well as had a really in-depth conversation about diversity in Canadian literature, both in terms of who's writing it and what's being written. I am Kendra Magnus Johnston. I am one of the local producers, helpers, I don't know, uh, here in Winnipeg. So I'm super happy to be here and again, super happy to see you all. So I'm here to introduce Ifi Chuetalu. She is uh, the host of Now or Never, basically famous. We're so happy to have her here. She's Nigerian-born, former Calgarian. She quit her job in the energy sector to pursue her creativity. In doing so, um, Ifi charted her own path to form a career as a stand-up comic, improv performer, and comedian writer. So she has written articles for CBC Comedy and was a contributing writer for season two of CBC's hit television show, The Baroness Von Sketch Show. So let's uh, give her a round of applause. Efi's going to come out now. Hi. It is a unique kind of hell to listen to your bio being read. Am I right? Thank you all for sticking around. I believe this is the last, the last uh, writer's talk of the day. So you are getting something really special, mainly because uh, she introduced me and said I was famous. Um, so this is it. <laughs> this is, uh, you're sitting close to fame right now, I guess. I want to introduce you to the writer that I will be speaking with, Minister Faust. He is a novelist, print, radio, television journalist, blogger, sketch comedy writer, video game writer, playwright, and poet. And if that's not enough, he also taught high school and junior high English literature and composition for a decade. He is the critically acclaimed author of The Alchemists of Kush and the Kindred Award-winning and Philip K. Dick runner-up Shrinking the Heroes. Minister Faust first achieved literary accolades for his debut novel, The Coyote Kings of the Space Age Bachelor Pad, which is a great name, but was also shortlisted for the Locus Best First Novel, Philip K. Dick and Compton Crook Awards. Please put your hands together for Minister Faust. Hello. How, how are you doing? I'm doing great. I love Winnipeg. It's delightful to be here. I've got family that goes back to the 1940s in this, uh, in this region. So it's uh, always feels like I'm coming home when I come to Winnipeg. Oh, well, welcome home. Thank you. I, uh, I just read this uh, bio for you, but I, I want to give you another intro if that's okay. <laughs> yes. You ready? Oh, oh. <laughs> this is the intro that you normally do on your uh, podcast. Oh, okay, sure. And that is the political, poetical, transformational, sensational, sinister minister Faust. That's Give right. it up for that. Yes. That sounds like the final lines of like a rap battle. And yeah. then you just walk away. I used to be a hip hop artist. And that's when I first created the name Minister Faust. And, and used to use these long titles, which uh, X-Clan had popularized. And sinister, for folks who don't know, is the Latin word for left. So it's a political reference rather than saying that I'm evil. It's actually saying I'm one of the good guys. Oh, I was really hoping you were making a play on like sinister 
and religion, and there was like a huge commentary you were making there. Oh, there's all kinds of layers and levels going on, but I, you know, I can only reveal a few at a time unless you pay to unlock the bonus features. Oh boy, if that's not a plug for your website, I don't know what it Absolutely. is. <laughs> you mentioned that you have family that goes back in Winnipeg, but you are from Edmonton. That's right. Yeah, born and raised. Born and raised. Uh, family, uh, my uh, father's side of the family. My father came from Kenya in the 1960s. My mother's side of the family came to Alberta in 1910 and were homesteaders there. And uh, I wrote a story for uh, an Alberta magazine called uh, 18 Bridges explaining how my mother's side of the family ended up selling the family farm after my grandfather died. And I, I, like out of the fairy tales, a wicked stepfather came along, moved the family to Edmonton where they opened a candy factory. But this was during the sugar rationing of uh, World War II. So naturally, that business didn't last. And then uh, they all ended up moving to the Sand Hills outside of Portage La Prairie and, um, and uh, you know, <laughs> living <laughs> in their, uh, intense poverty. So, uh, so it was fascinating for me to research the story and be able to write about some of those conditions. You know, family stories that I've heard my whole life. And I recommend for everybody, whether you're a writer or not, interview your relatives. Get their stories. Learn everything you can, because for the most part, the history books ignore the lives of ordinary people. They're the stories of uh, killers paid by the state. That is to say, you know, the people who make war. And they're the story of a few industrialists. And they're almost never the stories of women. And they're almost never the story of uh, white workers. And they're definitely not the story of the 90% of humanity that is brown. So interview your relatives. That's uh, important. You better... Write that down. Take notes. Uh, you remind me of a, one of my favorite African proverbs. I can't remember from what country it is, but it says, unless the lion learns to write, the tales of the hunt will always glorify the hunter. Right. And exactly. those, oh, someone likes that. Mm, I'm so deep up here. <laughs> um, <laughs> I do want to talk a little bit about Edmonton, though, because you center Edmonton in so much of your writing. That's right. That I'm curious, what is, uh, what is your Edmonton? I think everyone has a different experience of the city that they grew up in and know. So what is, uh, what's your Edmonton? It's so true. And, and, you know, in fact, there's a lot of writers in Edmonton. Edmonton is a huge literary community. Just great writers. So many people doing such interesting things. So many interesting things. I will say that uh, I don't write about the kind of Edmonton that shows up in um, glossy magazines where people are standing posed and talking about how expensive their wine is or, or where they buy their balsamic vinegar. Uh, that, that's, not, that's not the Edmonton I write about. My, Are people actually having balsamic vinegar conversations? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yes. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately. I just don't go to those places. Okay, okay. Fair. So, you know, Edmonton, I'll just, just by way of exp answering your question, you know, I, I took a trip to New York a few, couple of summers ago. And I wanted to go out to eat and I'd made a kind of a food map. Oh, there's some Senegalese places here. There's a Nigerian place here. And I was shocked because there was only one Somali restaurant. Well, Edmonton has at least 10 Somali restaurants and great food. Edmonton has the best, even though there's a terrific Eritrean place not far from here, Edmonton has the best Ethiopian and Eritrean food in North America, from what I can tell. And also just leaving the continent. I mean, we've got excellent Indian food and Chinese, Japanese, so much great food is in Edmonton. And if I know people who never experience any of that, they don't experience any of those things right in Edmonton. They don't know they're living in one of the great food cities of the country. And so I write about my book called The Alchemist of Kush. Kush, you know, for those who were here earlier, is um, an ancient African civilization along the Nile. 
And it is a name that that in Edmonton refers to the the core of the city where so many Sudanese, South Sudanese, Eritrean, Ethiopian, and uh, Somali and Djibouti people live and form communities and are doing amazing things and have founded so many businesses and great restaurants. So I'm interested in writing their stories because I was raised with that, you know, Old Testament proverb about uh, the master builder should find, it should build his temple with the forgotten stones. So you should find the people and the places and the ideas that other people have been ignoring because I guarantee you, they are, uh, they are doing amazing stuff. There is a, a, you know, the oldest book in the world was written by a, a brilliant um, African intellectual about 4,500 years ago. It's called The Instructions of Ptahotep. And one of the first lines in the book says, wisdom is more precious than emeralds, yet it is to be found among the washerwomen. So go to the places that other people are not writing about. And I guarantee you, they are right in your city. They may be on your block. They might even be inside of your own family. So that's the Edmonton that I like to write about. And, you know, one of my friends, the writer, Tololwa uh, Molel, um, who is one of Canada's most celebrated children's authors, I was very, very honored that he, you know, when he read my book, The Alchemist of Kush, one of the things he said was that, you know, this is the canlet that we don't usually get or that we never get. You know, so, and it's also, you know, uh, although the Alchemist of Kush addresses many people who are suffering, it's also about people who are thriving and they're organizing themselves in order to make a better life. My first book that is set in Kush is called The Coyote Kings of the Space Age Bachelor Pad. And that one is about two, you know, primarily it's about two brilliant young brothers. You know, one is, one is uh, a Sudanese Canadian, the other is a Trinidadian Canadian. And they're, you know, they're young and and they, you know, they invent stuff and they do all, because so many of the stories we get about us, they might be well-intentioned, but they are, and this goes to your question about what's the Edmonton you're writing about. They write about us as uh, victims. And now some people hate the word victim. And I think the word victim is a legitimate word, but it depends who's saying it. Because to some people, what it means is that you are a powerless, degraded person who can do nothing. But I mean, if you've ever gotten a parking ticket you didn't deserve, it's fair to say that you're a victim of something. The question is, like, did, did that destroy your life? Do you have no value or anything to do left? No. If you're a dynamic person, you keep doing stuff. So I like to write about us being amazing. I teach an education program in Edmonton called SMAGA, Super Mega Awesome Global Africans. <laughs> so we, you know, we're not learning you know, these endless uh, uh, stories of misery. We're learning about amazing civilization creators, world changers, people who are changing the world of technology and, and, and finance right now. And th this is what everybody else craves in the stories that they read. They want to walk into these stories, meet people that they want to know and be, and they want to be taken on adventures that they want to have for themselves. And yes, you can address oppression in those things. Of course, you can and you should, but the core give people stories that let them ultimately become a better person. I love that. What were the stories that you were drawn to when you were in your formative years? You know, my early, one of my earliest memories is my mom, who was an Alberta farm girl who grew up loving science fiction. And I don't even know, like my grandfather was a, a great lover of books. I, I still don't know how my mom got some of this stuff, but she was a reader of Robert Heinlein, one of the famous Euro-American science fiction writers. So my mom, I remember when I was about three or four, she was reading, uh, she read a lot of Heinlein stuff, even some of his stuff for young adults. And so she was reading me the book Red Planet. So I sat on her, on her lap 
and I would get this story about, you know, two Earth boys who were living in a colony on Mars and, and their experiences of meeting Martian people and flora and fauna and their adventure of trying to survive, which included, now that I think of it, I never thought of it before, running away from a residential school. Now, it's not residential in the, in the sense of Canadian colonialism. It's a boarding school, but still, they're having a terrible time at school. And so that story, um, right away, you know, from when I was very little, taught me, like, stories can transport you not just away, but to whole other worlds where you can encounter people doing amazing things. And some of the time, their lives are so extraordinary that they take those amazing things for granted. Now, I don't mean that fiction should be escapist. What I mean is it should be elevating. So if you are miserable, either in your personal conditions or in your social political conditions, does the story help you to rise up and create something new? I had never realized until a few years ago that my books, you know, sometimes other people read your work and they'll see something you didn't see. So a friend of mine is a science fiction scholar. Her name is Lisa Yazik. And she read my work and she said, you write domestic science fiction. Now she's an American. So at th first I thought she meant from the US. And I said, well, you know, I'm a Canadian, right? She said, no, no, I don't mean that way. I mean, domestically, you write, your books always have long sections of people in their homes and doing things like cooking or gardening or whatever else. And I said, yeah, I guess so. And I said, is that unusual? She said, it's highly unusual. Most science fiction writers, don't, and you know, about 60% are men, don't ever pay attention to those things, which are the foundation of everybody's lives. And so then I realized, you know, my, also in my work, I am writing about community organizers. Until she'd pointed out the domestic part, I never thought about it, but they're always books about people working together to make their communities better. So I learned early on, that's one of those things about the work of fiction to elevate people. Because otherwise, you get a lot of so-called literary fiction that, you know, I heard, it, I heard literary fiction described this way several years ago. It's about middle-aged uh, university professors who are really disappointed with life and discover there's nothing they can do about it. And you think, well, and, and who's teaching these books? The people that just described, right? Because they see themselves reflected in it. So, but they're wrong. Of course they can change their lives. Everybody can. So yeah, I think fiction, if it's not elevating us, what's it doing? It's either keeping us stagnant or it's making us sink down. What I love about you and your story is that you've done so many different things within writing, outside of writing. I know you were even a radio DJ. That's right. I uh, used yeah. to uh, do a little rap. That's a little right. Rapping yes. here and there. I yeah. want to know uh, what were some of the things that you were taking in uh, outside of you talk about the Red Planet being a big influence. What were some of the other stories? What was the music you were listening to? What were you into that allowed you to be who you are now? Well, you know, I uh, I do. I'm a I'm a pluralist. You know, not just in my political or religious philosophy, but artistically. I love the idea that we just get to experience all this wonderful stuff. And even though Canada is a settler colonial country and it has, you know, it's literally, it's founded on oppression and genocide, the best parts of what we are are about pluralism. That this is a place where we get to say that, you know, you get to be who you are and the rest of us get to be impressed, <laughs> you know? And that is when we're at our best, that's what we do really well, maybe better than most countries in the world. So I've always loved, you know, having a, a big range of, of, of experiences. My mother was a community organizer and she worked in the inner city of Edmonton at a time when a lot of refugees came from Portugal, which was still a, a fascist country, and also from 
Chile, which had experienced in 1973 a U.S.-backed fascist coup. So my mother um, did, did a multicultural arts program uh, that involved, you know, sculpture, painting, drawing, dance, theater. And I got to see that stuff. And I got to, when, as a little kid, I got to experience that. And I got to eat, you know, gelato from over here and empanadas, you know, from the Chileans. And, and I got to experience people from so many different backgrounds. And that, you know, and at home, we listened to music from around the world. I certainly, I, I listened to so much Harry Belafonte as a kid that even now it's hard for me to remember he's not my uncle. You know? <laughs> And we ate food from around the world. And, you know, like to me, it just seems, you know, we did not have, we didn't have money, you know, by, by Canadian standards, we were poor. But I just, I look back at my childhood and to me, it just seems like endless fun and delight. And so that as I got older, I mean, I was listening, my, my sister, Anna, she worked at a record store. And so she would sometimes bring me home discounted records. So she gave me, you know, I listened to a little bit of hip hop in my early teens, but then I got to listen to political hip-hop artists like Boogie Down Productions. And that changed my life, seeing KRS-One posed on the cover of his second BDP album, posed to look as like Malcolm X defending his, his home, right? So that was electrifying. I had listened to hip-hop that was fun, but suddenly it was political. And I had been reading Malcolm X, you know, since I was, you know, 13. Then I really expanded, you know, the range of artists that I listened to, even stuff my mom didn't know. We talked previously a lot about Nigerians, Nigerian Canadians, somebody introduced me to Fela Anakulapukuti, who was one of the greatest musicians of the 20th century. He was a Nigerian. He ran for the presidency of Nigeria. He uh, had his own, uh, you know, like establishment called the Shrine. He was uh, a, a sax player. He played the keyboard. He was a vocalist. He was a lyricist. He was the band leader. He also looked great and would play on stage wearing nothing but Speedos. So like the guy was just like this powerhouse, you know, just amazing person. And, you know, that really was my gateway to a whole bunch of other continental artists. And, you know, I had a great university professor, a Euro-Canadian named Robert Hunter, who was wonderful, taught me political science. He introduced me to Claude McKay, who was one of the, it was from the Caribbean, and he was one of the great poets of the Harlem Renaissance. He introduced me to the last poets, who were these great poets from the 1970s, New York, and, and Gil Scott Heron. And so I worked in community radio and then I had this huge other library and then it was the Evans Public Library. So it was just like, you know, what didn't influence me is I guess what I'm saying. It was all there. Sounds like country music did not. You know, I, <laughs> I, I, I will say this. I later came to see that there was a lot of great work being done because country and Western writers wanted to tell stories. And I think it's fascinating that with the racial division and oppression in the United States, that the two greatest modern repositories of spoken word storytelling are hip-hop music and country music, which, because of the populations who listen to them, seem like they would be existential you know, enemies. Like they'd, they'd be represent the two poles of, of, of the forthcoming American Civil War. But if the people who are the artists can say like, look, we both love the same thing. We both love telling stories. That means that there's something that makes us the same. That is an opportunity for... Like, you know, I'm a science fiction writer. Ten years ago, I discovered that Johnny Cash, Chris Christopherson, Waylon Jennings, and I'm forgetting the fourth guy. They formed the, um, the Highwaymen. They wrote a science fiction song about reincarnation called The Highwaymen. And, you know, I, I heard that song and I thought like, wow, there are people that I guess society has sort of trained me to ignore and they're doing some awesome stuff. And if we can get them to open up their eyes the same way, then we can prevent that war from coming. Very well said. 
I think it's, uh, it's interesting hearing you talk about your influences. I can kind of see why you've done the breadth of things that you have done because you have been, like I said in your bio, a novelist, a journalist, a speaker, sketch comedy and video game writer, playwright, like the hip hop artist, DJ. You've done so many different kinds of things and all around telling stories. So what draws you to these different kinds of storytelling? Well, you know, my perspective is that what makes humans humans is the things that we do that other life forms don't do. Now, this doesn't mean that we should degrade other life forms or, or think of us as better than they are. But if we want to understand what makes us human, it's what do we do that the others don't. And I don't believe there's any evidence whatsoever that any other life forms tell stories. So telling stories is a fundamental component of what it is to be us. And if you think of every class that you ever attended or every talk you ever attended, the stories that people told usually were the best ways for you to remember because they contain people and emotion and conflict and resolution. And the conflict doesn't have to mean fighting. Trying to climb a mountain in bad weather is a conflict and reaching the top is the resolution, right? Or falling off the cliff. Okay, this is the resolution. So tell stories. And so there were things that I, ways I, that I wanted to change society to make it more just. And I already loved stories. And it became clear that most people don't want to read a history text. They don't want to be lectured. They don't want to be told, think like this. But you tell a story that lets them figure it out for themselves and they'll just be grateful. Now, the stories can't be too subtle or they'll miss the point. I mean, for instance, um, uh, like many people of my generation, I grew up uh, loving Star Wars. George Lucas was very clear, this has been widely documented, that in George Lucas's original vision, the empire was the United States. And the rebellion was the Viet Cong. And that was even more clear in The Return of the Jedi when, you know, people with high technology were fighting uh, an indigenous people who had limited weapons and still the good guys triumphed. So unfortunately, that was so subtle that many right-wingers have tried to claim Star Wars. It's like, well, this goes exact, directly against your own vision. So stories can be a great way to get people to say like, hey, yeah, this matters to me. This is a way that I would like my society to work. And while we right now have a lot of people writing dystopian work because they are concerned about the threats that face us as a global civilization, I recently, just a couple of days ago, I think on io9, I saw an article that begged people to start writing utopian fiction. And I think it's really important that we as writers start to think, how can I write stories that show people how we could live? Now, I don't mean boring stories, and I don't mean stories where nothing interesting happens, but just as a slight example of that, I'm sure that many of you in the room saw the feature film Black Panther. Well, you may recall that in the capital city of Wakanda, there were no cars. So there was a subtle way of saying, you know, the cities of the future would be walkable and green and hustle, you know, be hustle and bustle and it'd be a beautiful place to live. And when you watch that movie, like it's, you kind of really want to go out and buy a plane ticket to go to Wakanda because it looks great. And so there's a lot of ways that through our fiction, we can show here's a better way to be. And that includes, by the way, showing that people of every background can enjoy life together. Robert J. Sawyer, who is you know, one of Canada's most successful authors, his books are highly pluralist. He is a, a, definitely, he is an atheist. He's not, a, he's not an aggressive atheist. He's a pluralist. And his books show religious people, secular people. They show people of every racial and ethnic background. They show people of every uh, gender identity. And it's one of his ways of just showing people can actually like being around each other. And so it's the opposite of what you see when you see photographs from a Trump rally. And so I would say, 
when you're writing work, I write in science fiction, and the majority of the history of science fiction looked like a Trump rally. The people writing it didn't even know that they were committing literary genocide, by which I mean, in their stories, everybody who didn't look like the writers didn't exist anymore. We don't have to do that. We don't have to wipe out those old books. We just have to say, we'll just do better. Which makes what the writing you do that much more important and almost radical. When did you, uh, did you come out the gate wanting to write those stories, like wanting to write those stories with the purpose of challenging uh, institutions, challenging colonialism? Was that always your intention? You know, I think like most people, as I grew into being an artist, what I decided was that, you know, I, I, first I wanted to write stories that would entertain me and entertain my friends or my future readers, you know? And then along the way, you know, you, you get, you get, um, you get challenged in good ways. Like, okay, have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? And, you know, when I was, one of the things I always wanted to work in, I, from the time I was, before I decided I wanted to write novels, I decided I wanted to be a comic book artist and writer. And in fact, I almost finished work on a, uh, a graphic novel, which, you know, I hope that uh, which should be out within the next year or so. So, and that is, uh, it's the story of John Ware. It's a mythic retelling of the story of John Ware, who was Canada's most famous cowboy who was in fact a West African from the United States who came to become a famous rancher and a creator of, of what we now think of as rodeo culture. But mine is different in that it's not a historical realist retelling. It's, it has ancient Egypt, uh, African Freemasons, and demons. <laughs> um, so, but the, as far as, uh, you know, when did I, uh, the reason I bring that up is because when I started to draw comic book characters. Uh, I was in a group of, of, of artists. Some of them were younger, some of them were older. And the kind of the leader of our group, we were all influenced by Watchmen. So I nicknamed our group, the Sketchmen. The leader of our group uh, was Adrian Kleinbergen. And he looked at my sketch pad and you know, he was a Euro Canadian, great guy. And he said, oh, wow, I noticed that like, there's a lot of your characters who are black. That's how he phrased it. And then, and then he kind of caught himself and he thought like, yeah, I was about to ask why. And now it's obvious. <laughs> right. And so he was reacting to the fact that primarily up until that point, all he'd ever seen was Europeans. He had not seen many African heroes in comics, but all he had to do was see like, well, of course, why wouldn't you? So I think what I always wanted to see was I wanted to be, I would have been happy to be Luke Skywalker, but Luke Skywalker didn't look like me. So I had less identification. I could still identify, but I had less identification. I think now of the huge number of African Canadians of all backgrounds and African Americans who would look at a movie like Black Panther, and they would be able to see, hey, I want to be T'Challa, for instance. There was a controversy that came up at Halloween where some people were saying like, you know, they were Euro-Canadians, Euro-Americans. They're saying like, is it okay for my son to dress up as Black Panther? And I said, we want a oh, world. they were asking you specifically? Well, sometimes they were asking me and sometimes they were just asking rhetorically. And I said, we want a world where kids of every background dream of being African heroes. That is a better world. Just, they don't need to wear blackface, genius, <laughs> right? Let them wear the mask and the suit. That is fine. But of course, just like you want boys to say like, I want to be that hero. And that hero happens to be a woman, right? I mean, one of the great heroes of the 20th century is Wangari Matai, a Kenyan intellectual feminist, uh, eco-developer, uh, pro-democracy advocate from Kenyan, the first East African woman with a PhD in the sciences. She's a role model for anybody. So I guess what I'm saying is I always wanted to tell stories about people making the world better. And as I've gotten older, I wanted to move away from stories where they did that by punching stuff 
because you can't punch your way to utopia. And one of the big flaws of science fiction is that, and fantasy, is that the key takeaway of Star Wars and the Lord of the Rings is that when faced with a big problem, just commit genocide. <laughs> so Battlestar Galactica, I'm using a lot of film and TV references because people are more likely to know those, but the, you know, Battlestar Galactica, the new series, ends with implacable foes who have committed genocide against each other realizing that they actually have to live in the same space and even intermarry if they're going to survive. The Matrix, the third film, which was not a great film, but it does end with saying that the only detente that we can survive, like the only way to pull back from doomsday is to appreciate each other and live together. So my friend Robert J. Sawyer, he's a pacifist and his stories never end with a gunshot or a punch or people killing their way to a, a, what they think is a better world. They're always about people finding, using rationality and compassion. So I'm still learning how to make exciting stories that people want to read, but Robert J. Sawyer is a best-selling author and he does it, so I've still got some stuff to learn. I love that uh, you can't punch your way to utopia. I feel like that needs to be <laughs> yes. some sort of merch that you put out there, like <laughs> yeah. a t-shirt yeah. or, yeah. or something. Yeah. I think it's so interesting that you have... Uh, really had your voice in science fiction. Because as you mentioned, science fiction, a lot of times when I think about science fiction, I don't necessarily think about you or some of the stories that you've mentioned historically. And I want to um, just share this quote that I, I came across from an African-American writer and editor uh, whose work is based in Black speculative fiction. His name's Troy Wiggins. And he said, and this was in reaction to a study that was done around Black authors in science fiction. And he said, it is so disappointing that a space defined by creating new and different realities is so bound by banal, real world, structural anti-blackness and inequality. And he then followed that up by saying, I have a better chance of being wrongfully convicted of a crime than I do of selling a piece of short fiction to a major speculative fiction magazine. This is not hyperbole. Look at the numbers. Search your feelings. You know it to be true. Yes. Yeah. Well, it, I mean, it is true. And I guess my reactions to that are, number one, we need to uh, organize in ways to change existing structures so that they are more just. So there's a great book called Sisters of Tomorrow, which is not sisters like we would say, but it means about women science fiction writers. It's written by Lisa Yazik and Patrick B. Sharp. It shows that the early history of science fiction, like we often have the impression that there were no women in writing science fiction and they've just gone through the archive and they've discovered the exact opposite is true. That through most of the early history of science fiction, it was about 40% of editors and authors were women. And they were not just, they were not just writing stories that would appeal to, you know, white male power fantasies. They were writing feminist stories. One of the leading figures in this science fiction movement in the U.S. was a uh, she was a, herself a writer of science fiction poetry. She was an editor, and she described herself, based on her ethnic background, as an Aztec American. She was actually, uh, the FBI was investigating her because of the type of work that she was writing. So, like, what I'm saying is that they created structures that let them publish other people whose work they admired, which, as it also in, happened to include, like, a huge number of women. So, I don't blame Brother Troy, for being unhappy with the way that this situation currently exists. When we teach people and we educate them, they can try to change those structures. But, you know, really, to give you a polite, edited version of somebody's, uh, and I, 
and I can't remember who said it in the 1960s, but he said, and I'll give you the G-rated version. He said, if you can't, if they won't let you eat at the table, then break the legs off. <laughs> now, I'm less interested in destroying somebody else's structure than I am in making a better structure that outcompetes it. So I don't need to break the table, the table legs. What I need to do is build my own table, put better food on it. Everybody looks at my table. They shift over there. They start paying me for my food. And then these guys over here have two choices. They can fold up and they can go out of business or they can say like, um, excuse me, how do you make Doro Watts? You know, and how do you make Puff Puff? Because evidently people want to buy that and we'd like to buy it. And I'll say, yes, I will teach you for a price that we can discuss later. And eventually they'll have to learn that, you know, you can make nice and you can notice how awesome other people are. And, you know, some of them will come around. And I just would say to everybody in this room, we, chances are everybody in this room, we've had some bias about somebody, somewhere, a group or whatever else. We could grow up. We did. We all learned, oh, that was a foolish idea. That was dumb of me. Hopefully we didn't do anything or say anything hurtful. But if we did, hopefully we apologized. We can all get better. So I think that um, lots of, like we are living in the golden age. Many people, there's a lot of names for it. Some people call it black speculative fiction. Some people call it Afrofuturism. I call it Afrotopianism. Afrofuturism is a term that was invented by a non-African. And I believe that self-determination begins with self-description. So Afrofuturism suggests that we should be concerned about a future as if we've abandoned the past. And since according to a colonial education and the process of colonial destruction, like you can read books on the destruction by colonialists of African cities. You go back, you check the archives, and you'll see these amazing line drawings of these glorious cities. And of course, the greatest, uh, many of the greatest of all in ancient Egypt and thoroughly African civilization. Many of us, because we have been subject to this colonial thought washing project, don't even know about these African civilizations to begin with. So Afrofuturism, in the name suggests there's nothing in the past to pay attention to. But most of the people that I know who are doing this work, the great writer Nalo Hopkinson, a Guyanese sister who was for a long time in Toronto, wrote the groundbreaking book, Brown Girl in the Ring, about a dystopian future failed state Toronto that requires the Yoruba gods to save it. So these writers know our future is built on our past. Not only do we have nothing to be ashamed of, we have everything to be thrilled about and that the world would adore if the world got a chance to experience it. And, and as an example of that, many of us who have tried to write, but particularly African writers, and I'm sure Troy has had this experience, have said, oh, you know, I talked with this editor or maybe I wanted to get a film made. And the gatekeeper, the producer, the editor said, no, because first they used to tell us your people don't read. So that was the first way they'd say, so they won't buy your work. Then they, they realized, I guess many of them, they realized just how, first of all, false and racist it was to say that. So then they started to try a different tack. And they would say to us, they'd say, no, you have to understand white people won't buy this. So they're saying, they're blaming all other white people. They're saying all white people are racists, but me, you know, okay. So how do I say fooey? I say, look at the success of Black Panther. One of the most successful films ever made. Now, we bought a lot of tickets, okay? <laughs> but we didn't buy all those tickets. Five, three times. Three <laughs> yeah. times. And so I guarantee you, there, was a, there were literally millions of Europeans in Canada, the United States, and other parts of the world who evidently really liked to watch stories about African heroes. So they're not the problem. 
it's the editors and the producers who are saying you can't do this. And if ever, I'm still amazed. Somebody at Disney said, no, we can do this and we can make money and we're going to bankroll this film and it's going to be a huge hit. And they were right. So to many people, I'd say, create our own institutions. There is a writer, uh, editor named Milton Davis who founded uh, his own publishing company. They do a whole bunch of Afrotopian stories. They saw steampunk, which is, a, which is Vict like a Victorian era science fiction stories. But it, it, it revels in Victorian-era imperialism. So they created Steamfunk, which is an Afrocentric version of that era of writing. And that's what they do. They just all, you know, people like Milton and others, they just create the stuff that we want. So yes, it's okay to be unhappy that things aren't good. Make them better. I, uh, I do want to talk about about my experience of reading one of your books, uh, specifically The Coyote Kings of the Space Age Bachelor Pad. Here's what kind of blew my mind about this very, very quickly into the book. You had characters who were Sudanese-Canadian, Trinidadian-Canadian, and not only that, they loved sci-fi themselves and were very open about it. You even had sort of uh, almost role-playing style statistics about their abilities and things like that. And then they were referencing things like, like Fela Kuti, like Public Enemy. It was this blend that felt very true to my experience growing up, but also felt, I, have to, I, I had a weird reaction of having, being like, is this allowed? <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, I, I was just curious, what, what has been the reception to, 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 to your work? Well, I think, you know, in that example that you give, and, and thank you for your kind words, I think that a lot of people reacted the way that you just described. People were thrilled to see multi-dimensional characters. Again, making TV and, and film references, a lot of you have probably seen, you know, well-intentioned, but ultimately super bland token African characters on TV shows. And they were kind of there to say like, hey, you know, we're trying to do the right thing here. But they produced characters who just like, they were always good and they, weren't, they were never the funniest person or they were never like the, the center of attention for being the most handsome or attractive person. So they were just kind of there as uh, like, they were there to show that, no, we, we will hire you people, <laughs> you know? So what you want to do is make the characters that all the readers want to be and all of the viewers want to be and all of the actors want to play. And then, you know, you've made awesome characters. Uh, you know, on a TV show like Oz, as an example, about a prison, which is, you know, a terrible place, but nevertheless, all the roles of all the characters from all the backgrounds were so well-written that everybody who would watch a show as an actor would want to play any of them from any And that's what you should do. You should, so in a sense, what I'm saying is if you have created a character who, is, who can simply be described as the African character, then he's not a character. If you are not naming the character, you know, then like, the, I'll give you an example. Think of Kathy Bates. Every time she plays a role, she's awesome, right? Like if you're a man or any sexual identity, you'd say, I wish I could take that role because like what a great role and, and she helped make it great. So she's playing great characters time after time. That's, that's what I try to do with my characters. And I think that, yeah, like my friends and, and readers who are science fiction and fantasy fans, often they're, who are not Africans, they're, they find it really a delight from what they've told me to meet Africans that they just totally relate to as fellow fans. And similarly, you know, some African readers who are not science fiction and fantasy fans, they're just interested. They say like, oh yeah, this guy, he's just like my brother. He's just like my cousin or my sister, whatever else. So they, they can understand. 
I just want to say that, you know, in 2018, me writing a book that had people who were open fans doesn't seem all that, all that odd. But in 2004, this was, this was, and I, I mean, I, I'm going to be super self-back patty right now, but this was revolutionary. That wasn't being done at the time. You weren't seeing science fiction fans being depicted in books. You still were getting TV shows like the, um, what's the one with the, uh, the, the, the three scientists? Uh, Big the Bang Big Bang Theory. So you still got these basically caricatures of people with tape on their glasses, that kind of, that, you know, the super geek, you know, stereotypes. And it's like, no, this is not the people that I knew. These were not my science fiction and fantasy friends. So I was just trying to show real people. And I say to all writers, write the world that is really in front of your eyes, not your screened version, you know? And like, and this is still something that I'm working on. I realize that there are very few indigenous characters in my books and there are very few queer characters. So I'm, I'm getting better and all of us can just get better. You remind me of uh, my experience. I grew up in Calgary and I'm sure this isn't a uniquely Calgary experience, but people love to police my blackness. Like <laughs> yeah. it was always like, you didn't listen to this album. Like a, it was like, oh, I really like the show <laughs> Friends, which I did at the time. And they're like, you're, you watch Friends? Like you're not supposed to be. So there's something that uh, there was almost a permission in your writing to actually be very open about the other things that you're into in a way that I was surprised even now that I'm much older than at those times when people are really saying those things that I still, I still felt that kind of release to that. So thank you. Yeah, it's so important for people to see that they just get to decide for themselves who they want to be and how they want to be it. And I remember in the 1980s when I would see bands like Fishbone and living color. Now, I'm not a fan of what, like, I, I don't mean I'm against it. I'm just like, I'm not a, I'm not really a punk guy. and I'm not a, a hard rock guy, but I loved seeing those bands because they said there are, there's a billion of us. There are a billion Africans. There's therefore a billion ways at least to be an African. And since everybody can be multiple ways, it turns out there's more than a billion ways. So, you know, there's a whole Afro punk movement. There's all kinds of like, just, so that's just like one genre. I am a, big fan of hip-hop. I used to create it. I was a hip-hop uh, radio DJ and I was an MC. And, but when people come to me and they expect me to, you know, know one specific hip-hop group or that that's got to be the boundaries of my listening, I, I find that really irritating. As a radio DJ, I did three years doing a show called The United Nation of Hip-Hop. And then I started to put reggae in. And then after, then I started to mix in Ganawa music, which is, you know, the Africans of Morocco make this magnificent music with this amazing instrument called the sintir or the gogo. And it's kind of, it looks like a boxy uh, leather hide small guitar. And it makes this super deep bass sound. It's just, it's amazing, right? Hassan Hakmoun is one of the most famous players. And I saw his, his, his album and I listened to his music and I thought, I got to play this on my show. And I thought, this doesn't fit my format. And that's when I realized, change the format. So I launched a new show called The Phantom Pyramid, Global African Musics, led by a head charge of hip-hop. And it said musics, plural, because there's no such genre as African music. Just like there's no such genre as white music. There's all those musics of the European world, and there's all these genres of the African world. And sometimes they are, sometimes they overlap. So I just think being a pluralist is the best way to live. You maximize how much happiness you get, how many friends you can have, and how much you're allowed to do. Plus, no one wants to talk to the person who's like, you've never heard of Tupac, <laughs> but like, who cares? Exactly. In fact, share your favorite song with them. Maybe <laughs> you'll, right. you'll let them discover something. Exactly. In your writing, like I just mentioned in the Coyote Kings, 
of the Space Age Bachelor Pad and in The Alchemist of Kush, which you spoke about a little bit earlier, you uh, tell stories from Sudanese communities, Trinidadian communities, Somali communities. And I'm, I'm curious, what is it that uh, when you're telling these stories, how, what are you doing to make sure that you are grounded in the authenticity of those communities? Right. A great question. And what I can say is I'm sure I got plenty of stuff wrong. I'm happy to say that I haven't had anybody yet write me a letter and say, like, you were so off on this. Now, it could just be that they just have totally not read the books and they're just waiting for me. One day they'll read them and they'll say, you're wrong on these thousand things. But I, I have sometimes met writers who say, I mean, they mean well, but they decided in advance, I'm going to write about blank. And then they have this, the, the blank is some group of people that they actually have no personal organic lived experience with or if they do, it's just like, I just know this one person and I'm going to use him to generalize their entire community. And I think, why are you writing about people with whom you have no experience? And I don't mean that in a snotty rhetorical way. I mean, literally, why? Why are you writing about a group of people with whom you have no contact? I don't understand why that's interesting to you. If they're so interesting to you that you want to spend a year of your life developing a story, why aren't you meeting these people, <laughs> right? So I tended to write, like, there's a lot of, of the 1 billion Africans, of all of the nations, you know, the 54 countries plus the territory on the continent, and then all of the Caribbean and Brazil and, and Canada, the United States, of where we are, I'm not writing about most of those nations because I have no experience with most of those peoples. There are almost, there are very few, uh, for instance, Francophones in my stories, even though those, like, there's, you know, Senegal and Mali and other places, because I, just because of the language barrier, I've met so few. But there are South Africans, Trinidadians, Somalis, Ethiopians, and so forth, because I, and Sudanese, because I've met a lot. So I can just write with the, about the people who've eaten dinner at my house, that we've eaten together at the same restaurants, we've been community organizers together, they, we went to university together. And I would just say to anybody, if you want to have a life that is more pluralist, make sure that you're not taking the collect all 12 approach. You know, you're not, don't check people off on the list. Like, oh, I met one of them. Great. You know, no, it's not, that's not the, the idea. The idea is go to places and do things where you just are automatically going to get to meet awesome people. Um, and you will be impressed. I'm not saying go to places so that you can, you know, feel pity for people and then feel good about yourself that like, I'm so good that I feel bad for people. I mean, meet awesome people meet awesome people. You will love life. You will just be a happier person. You will have a blast. And if you keep meeting lots of awesome people, I, you know, like where they go, like, you know, you were a performance poet. And I'm pretty sure like, cause I know we know some of the same people and maybe you were performing at the Rouge Lounge in Edmonton sometimes. That was a very racially diverse crowd. And I think it was a pretty gender balanced crowd as I recall. So Go to places where you're going to meet lots of people and then ask them questions. I don't mean like an annoying, like, you know, like, tell me about what, what's the experience of being a black. <laughs> don't do it in that voice. Don't, Use yeah. your regular, regular but, voice. But I mean, like, just talk to people like, hey, uh, you know, I really like that poem you did. Uh, or, you know, oh, wow. Like, you know, uh, what inspired you to write this book? You know, like, like that. If you go to a restaurant and you like the food, you, you can actually just say to the waiter, like, I'd, I'd like to thank the chef. And sometimes the chef will come out and just wants to, is enthusiastic about the food and just says, oh yeah, well, I, blah, blah. And then before you know it, you're learning. 
And so that's part of your process of getting ready to write some of these stories is just having conversations with the people yeah. around you? I mean, for the most part, like, okay, in the, the Alchemist of Kush, there was a lot of very specific details about, of all the stories I've written, it's the one that is really the only one that you could say is a story that deals with real world, uh, like um, l- literal description of, of, of an oppression story. Okay, Because usually I'm more interested in showing people being awesome. The Alchemist of Kush, half of it is set in the ancient world of uh, along the Nile. And then the other half of it, and these are interlocking chapters, is set in the modern Edmonton. And it's about two Sudanese boys who are, boys who've been orphaned in war. They call them lost boys. They lost their fathers. They went on a trail of tears with their mothers and were separated. They got taught by an older man who gave them the opportunity either to destroy or to create. And one is Horus, son of Osiris, an African boy god 7,000 years ago. And the other is uh, Raphael Garang, who is a South Sudanese young Canadian. And so I did, I interviewed people because I've been a journalist a long time. So I did a lot of interviews uh, with people who lived those experiences. They were refugees. The, I read online accounts. I did, you know, I watched speeches, you know, find out. But I didn't, you know, leap into a community that I had no personal direct connections with. I just, you know, met people I could say like, and then the story started to form. So I guess in general, what I'd say is if you meet lots of amazing people, you'll naturally want to write about them and they'll be fully three-dimensional people. Because like Raphael Garang, who I just referenced, he is not, and I put this in quotation marks, just a refugee. I mean, yeah, that is a big part of his story and it's serious. And that makes him different from everybody around him. At the same time, he draws comic book characters. He does hip hop music. He's not a cypher for me, by the way. Uh, you know, he has, uh, he has a specific friend at a specific school. He does stuff, right? And know your characters by what they do. And you'll know that you've got a token because your token really probably doesn't do much other than just show up to show off whatever identity that is a gender or sexual or religious or ethnic identity that you've affixed, as opposed to like, well, what's an interesting person? Something that I often do when I'm outlining a book is I've got my list of characters and I'll sometimes just say like, hey, why can't this character be a woman? Because as a male writer, I tend to default my characters are male. And then I just realize, well, why can't this character be a woman? And then what I don't do is that doesn't make this a, a man in a skirt because it's a different person now who has a different life than a man would in those circumstances. But that doesn't mean that I just fill that in with a bunch of oppressive stuff like, oh, she was denied this and blah, blah. I mean, she's got a different life. She, she might be more awesome, you know? So it's ask yourself questions and live a life. And hopefully, and I also recommend to everybody, you're an interviewer, I'm an interviewer, do journalism. You can get paid if you want to be a, how many of you want to be writers or are writers right now? Okay. So uh, what's the local arts weekly in, in, in Winnipeg? Like the, in Edmonton's View Weekly, what's it, what's it here? Do you have a, like a, a, a free paper that you could pick up in a, like a, oh, I'm sorry. Well, that's terrible. Oh, that's awful. Okay. But you know what? Digging into wounds. Oh, right wounds. Now. I'm sorry. But <laughs> you know what? There's podcasts that you launch yourself. There's blogs you launch yourself. There's your own Facebook page. And when you interview, like you just say to somebody who's, who's being awesome, you just say, hey, I think you're awesome. I would like to interview you for my ex. of the time people say, thank you, because no one else has come up to them. So just interview people and you will be learning about real people and they'll tell you their real stories. And 
you are just gaining the world that way. And also, when you're writing out their, their quotations, you're getting a sense for their voice. And so you're learning to write better dialogue. And you just, you're just going to, and you will, and also, just as a career building move, the more you do this, the more people you meet, and the more people you've done a good turn for, the more people will also want to help promote your books and your art. So, you know, pay it forward. I've uh, perused MF Galaxy, your podcast, and, and I now know the secret to getting some of those amazing guests that you had. It's probably just asking. Just asking. <laughs> You're interesting. I want to <laughs> talk. Right. Yep. Yeah. And you've had a lot of really great conversations. One thing that uh, I've noticed about your writing is you don't stick to form. Like there's definitely, like as you mentioned in The Alchemist of Kush, it's two stories being told simultaneously and it kind of jumps. And even in the, at the very beginning, you mentioned that here, there are a couple options for you on how you want to read this. In the same way in the Coyote Kings of the Space Age Bachelor Pad, like these aren't linear books in a way that you would sit down and, and uh, read it in what feels like a more traditional way. And so I'm curious, uh, what kind of forms are you hoping to challenge next? Thank you for asking that. Well, so, um, you know, with The Alchemist of Kush, as you mentioned, there's, um, there, there's technically, there's three stories. So there's the A story, which is set in ancient Egypt. There's the B story, which is set in modern Edmonton. And then there's the C story at the very end, which is kind of like a scriptural version of the A story. So if you've ever read any, I don't know, have, have any of you ever read this, this in the Bible, the story of Noah's Ark? Yeah, okay. Isn't it amazing to think that's basically a page and a half? Like all these movies, comic books, novelized versions, and you think like, oh, yeah, that, must, that story must be 100 pages long. It's a page and a half. So there's this really neat thing that happens when stories are super shrunk down and how much the audience generates its own content, right? So that's what the C story is. And I challenged readers at the beginning. I said, look, you can read, each one is 10 chapters long. You can read the story like ABC, ABC, all the way through to chapter 10. Or you can read A, B, A, B, A, B, and then read all of C. Or you can do C for, in other words, challenge readers with new structures to find new ways to navigate your stories. And then two people will not be reading the same book because the order has an effect. My second book is called Shrinking the Heroes. And it is, on the surface, it's a self-help book for superheroes. So the superheroes are in the world's mightiest super team, uh, but they, are, they have a toxic workplace. So they're ordered by their board of directors, get group therapy or you are fired and you will lose your benefits and you'll be publicly disgraced. And it's also secretly, the book is about the Bush administration. So you get to read it as, you know, I'd, I'd, like a lot of people, I've read self-help books. You're not supposed to say that. And then people who've never read one will say, oh, it's a junk genre. It's like, how do you get off slamming a bunch of books you've never read? It's absurd. There are good ones, there are bad ones, like everything else. So I'd read a bunch of these self-help books and I noticed the best ones are a whole bunch of stories. So I wrote this novel in the form of a self-help book because why not? You know, lots of people love this form and it's a great form to tell multiple stories. This morning on the panel, I challenged my fellow writers to rethink eBooks. So if you're a mystery writer and you're setting books in your city, why not? Build the book the way that Pokemon Go works so that you have people who can, you know, there are geocache locations in the city. You read, let's say, chapter one of the book, and then you're tasked to go to such and such a location. And when you get there, there's a clue, and the clue unlocks chapter two. And then maybe the characters are having lunch at such and such a restaurant, 
So that sends them to chapter three, where then you like readers have to go to that restaurant, order such and such a thing on the menu. And when they do that unlocks, first of all, they get a meal and then that unlocks a new chapter and new characters. In some of my books, I have hyperlinks so that you can hear the music that the characters are listening to. So you're reading the ebook and click on this is like, oh, that's the song. Rather than just describing the song, it's like, let people hear it and let me help an artist to sell some records. So all these forms, if we, all we do is we think like, we don't need to be trapped in old thinking. I've heard people who say that, you know, oh, ebooks, they're not real books. And I always imagine 4,000, 2,500 years ago, there's some Egyptian scribe or priest, and he sees some Greek who's come to Egypt, and he's got a stack of sheets like this, okay? And they're compressed. And he says, that's not a scroll. But the scroll is the words, it's not the form. The book is the words, not the form. And if you read it out loud, it's still a book. So forget about the old ways, create, I don't mean forget about them, but make them better. Make those books, an ebook is like magic. I mean, any ancient civilization or even 30 years ago, they'd say, wow, I can't believe what you can do. This is amazing. I could put thousands of books on this tiny device. That's magic. Make more magic. And that's what's in store for you next, making more magic. Making more magic. Your next book is in collaboration with Pokemon Go. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I do want to do more uh, geotagging and that kind of thing. And there are ways. I also would say to people, so I used to work in video games and I worked for a company that specialized in uh, highly narrative games. And there's a technical academic term for this type of writing. It's called ergodic, which I assume means like ergo as in therefore in Latin, right? So we, many of us, when we were kids, we saw these uh, choose your own adventure books, right? And I'm sure that you had the experience that, you know, like your teachers primarily probably thought, oh, that's just junk reading. Now, I, I don't, I'm not really conversant in the genre. And I'm assuming that most of them were just YA books that were fun. But there is no sound reason why that shouldn't be a form for telling serious stories. Why can't your book have branching paths? The biggest reason is that it's technically very difficult to do, but it's easier to do in an ebook. So you don't have to have like all these extra pages that you have to box and ship to bookstores. Now a reader makes this choice that takes them to this chapter and it's the same cost to transmit the book. At the very least, imagine a book that lets you choose one of three possible endings. Because if your characters get to a point where like, do they get married? Do they not get married? Do they hate each other? Or it's like, do they win the war? Do they lose the war? Is this a stalemate? Think of all the possibilities. That's only adding two more chapters to the book. So your writing time isn't that much greater. And you could just package them in one book. Like it could be a print book. And it's like, now you decide A, B, or C. You know, that's fine. But I think it would be really neat to have to choose and then not know what happens in those other two chapters and then talk with another reader. So there's a lot of ways that we can do these things. And photography, I mean, for crying out loud, like not everybody's going to be in your city to read your geocache novel but they could at least see pictures of these locations. There's a lot of stuff you can do. You could tag audio files. Like people could, if you've interviewed people and say, for more, you know, uh, you know Dr. Simpson uh, is based on real life uh, surgeon uh, so-and-so. Uh, to hear my interview with him, click here. Like, it's like bonus features on a DVD. And so what I would encourage everybody to do is like, sure, anything I said, it's all freeware. Take it all, use it. Let me know that you did it so that I can see it. I have no copyright on it but then do better than I suggested. Come up with things I've never even thought of and we'll make books, you know, really, we'll remake the concept of a book. Multi-platform books. Exactly. There was one hand. Um, Did you want to say your question real quick? 
When you're writing a book that has multiple narratives or different time frames, how do you actually personally go about organizing that so that it's not this overwhelming task? Incoherent, yeah. Well, you know, in the Coyote Kings, I have, I think it's 11 narrators. So it's technically, it's nine narrators and then two of them also write. So then they have a different narrative voice in their writing than in their speaking. So what I did was, because, you know, I have a background in theater and in my, I, my family, we grew up loving doing various accents. Is I really wanted each character to have a distinct voice. Some writers I know, when they want to switch narrators, they just simply put the name of the narrator above the chapter. You can, but I think it's much more interesting. Like my friends don't walk up to me and say, Malcolm, it's Tony. And then I recognize them. Like they just, I see them or on the phone, I hear them and I know, oh, that's Tony. So r capture people's voices effectively. It doesn't even have to be, you know, ethnically specific accents. It's just people have speech ticks. So that's a simple way. When, if you mean like a non-linear story that's more complex, um, I would refer you to the brilliant uh, set of short stories by Eden Robinson, just one of Canada's most amazing writers. And her book, her collection is called Traplines. And there's a story in there, which is called Queen of the North. And it's about a, a really smart, amazing young woman who also uh, has survived sexual assaults. And so she's this amazing person who is very self-destructive and destructive of other people. And because her life is disordered and her mind is disordered, the story is out of sequence. And man, what, I mean, you'll love it just as something to read, but take it as a masterclass in how do you make a story work in, uh, in that way. So yeah, Trap Lines by Eden Robinson. And she's a Heisla Heilstuck writer from uh, BC. And uh, yeah, she's awesome. I have so much more that I think we could talk about, but I know it is time. So I want to just thank, thank you, Minister Faust, for this conversation and for sharing your work and your story. Can we give him a round and of thank applause? Thank you for your great questions. Thank yes. you. And also, please check out my podcast, MF Galaxy. If you've got your phone handy, just go to mfgalaxy.org right now or go to your favorite podcasting site. It's free to subscribe, and there's hundreds of interviews with writers. It's really well done. You should check it out. Thanks so much. Have a great night. We hope you enjoyed this program. Please consider subscribing on your favorite podcast provider. If you're an emerging writer interested in receiving our open calls for submissions or invites to our events, please join our DD newsletter by emailing us at info at diasporadialogues.com with subscribe in the subject line. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>